Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Isn't God good? Well, we're in Luke chapter 23. Some of you um, who've been around since 2018 never thought you would live to see this day, that we would be looking just a few sermons to the end of the book of Luke. I, I, I look back, I started September of 2018 preaching through the book of Luke. Uh, we've taken some breaks, but uh, here we are. Look, let's look at verse 44. I want to read it one more time, it's a short passage. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sunlight, sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, My father, father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Uh, next weekend, we, uh, I, I'm preaching the idea that Jesus is buried. On Palm Sunday, we're looking at the idea that Jesus is buried and that his burial, those three days of silence, did not mean that God was not working. And then what we are going to look at on Easter is the resurrection in chapter 24. And so I'm so excited, so excited to preach this morning. Uh, and we're just going to walk through this passage. So you're going to need your Bible. Uh, we're going to do some uh, looking back and, and seeing some symbolic uh, things here in the Scriptures. But uh, let's start. Verse 44. You, you with me? Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God. It was now about the sixth hour. Yeah, when you think about the day, uh, that means they started the time uh, at 6 a.m. So the first hour was 7, the sixth hour is noon. It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon to 3, darkness over the face of the land. Verse 45 continues, while the sun's light failed. Darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And so what we see... If we just look back for a second at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, we see Jesus at the Last Supper. We see Him wash His disciples' feet. We see Jesus betrayed by Judas. We see Jesus handed over in the Garden of Gethsemane after praying and sweating great drops of blood. We see Jesus taken to Caiaphas' house, put in a pit, questioned there. We see Jesus brought out. Uh, that next morning, on Friday morning, and we see that on that Friday morning, Jesus is brought before the high priest, he's brought before Pilate, he's brought before Herod, and ultimately, in his innocence, he is still um, publicly condemned to be crucified. 
Everybody. Pilate, Herod say, this man is innocent. And we see even the centurion who is crucifying Jesus in verse 47 says, certainly this man was innocent. He was an innocent lamb led to slaughter. He was our sacrificial lamb. He was the one whose sinless life, he lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't. Died the death that we deserved to die but didn't. He is this sinless, spotless lamb presented to God as a sacrifice of substitute. He is brought to this cross there on the way. He stumbles and he says, don't weep for me, daughters, but weep for yourselves and for your children because a day of judgment's coming and that day will be so horrible that you're going to look at the mountains and you're going to wish that the mountains would fall on you because that will look like a joy compared to the judgment coming at that day. He comes to the cross and he is hung there on the cross and as he is hanging on the cross, he looks out and pleads with the Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And aren't you glad that there from the cross, Jesus looked from eternity past to eternity future. He saw your name, he saw my name, and he pleaded with the Father on your behalf and on my behalf that you and I would be forgiven through what Christ is accomplishing here on the cross. I'm so thankful for that truth. Then, two criminals, one crucified on either side, one is railing at him, mocking him. If you hear the Christ, save yourself and us. And that's exactly what he was doing. He just didn't understand that this is how Christ is saving himself and us. It's through death, not in spite of it. See, the Christian doesn't look at death as our greatest enemy any longer. Death could not keep our Savior in the grave. And nor will it will the one who follows him. Isn't that good news? Death is the entrance. It is your entrance ticket into glory with God for all eternity. And the second criminal says, listen, would you remember me when you get into your kingdom? Jesus looks at the criminal and says, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And it reminds us that there's nothing necessary for salvation except to look on the Son of God and the Savior of the world in faith, seeing our that we are dying for our sin and that Jesus, or, or we, we should be dying for our sin, but Jesus is dying for us. That we look on Him in simple faith, we are justified by grace alone. Nothing we do. And we come to this moment where there on the cross, all of these signs are happening, all of these things pointing to our salvation, And then what we see is the heavens and the earth join in, attesting to what Christ is doing. And there is darkness over the whole land. And the other Gospels will tell us that there was an earthquake also. There's darkness. There's cosmological signs in the heavens and the earth to attest to what is happening in the spiritual realm here and darkness was symbolic in the Old Testament. When you look back through the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of darkness. I think my first one is Genesis chapter 1. Uh, that there was darkness covering the face of the deep before God created. It was a symbol of chaos. It was a symbol that God had not uh, entered in to create anything new. It was a symbol. Darkness was a symbol of spiritual depravity. It was a spiritual of despair, a, a sign of spiritual despair. I want to look at Job chapter 24. I think it's on the screen. 
darkness in the Old Testament. Job says there are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways, light's ways, and who do not stay in light's paths. The murderer rises before its light, that he may kill the poor and the needy, and in the night he is like a thief. Depravity. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he veils his face in the dark. They dig through houses, and by day they shut themselves up. They do not know the light, for deep darkness is morning to all of them, for they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. This is a symbolic of depravity in your life. I know that uh, before I met Jesus, I felt like I was in the dark and there was nothing that I could do that brought me out of the dark and it was only by trusting in Jesus that I was brought into the light. I remember the weight of that sin in my life. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 says it this way, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Symbolic of depravity and despair, of hopelessness. And we see that here on this day, that as Jesus is being crucified, darkness falls over the earth. Darkness falls over the earth. Um, It is symbolic of the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord, where judgment will be meted out and salvation will be accomplished. uh, It is symbolic of that day. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, I think we have it on the screen. It says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Joel continues in chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and He utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. There is this idea in the Old Testament prophets pointing forward to the day of God's coming judgment and redemption that darkness will be assigned to accompany His coming redemption. Isn't that good news? Uh, This one, Amos chapter 8, verse 9, talking about the Messiah coming and redemption coming. This is 750 years before Jesus is born. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. In this passage in Luke chapter 23, what time did the sun go dark? Noon. Who prophesies that it would go dark? Amos does. 750 years before Jesus dies, the prophet says, on the day of my salvation, the sun will go dark. In the middle of daylight, at noon. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 10, the, one of the first few plagues was the plague of darkness? Darkness over the land of Egypt? And it says in chapter 10, verse 21, that it was a darkness to be felt. I just imagine standing around the cross of Jesus 
watching all that's taking place, hearing him say, Father, forgive them, seeing the interaction between Jesus and the criminals and the mockers and and all of these people, and then all of a sudden, in broad daylight, at high noon, the sun goes dark. I wonder if it could be said of that day, like it was said in Exodus, that this was a darkness to be felt. The darkness in Egypt lasted three days. Don't you think that's pointing forward? Symbolic. How many days was the light of the world buried in a tomb? Three days. It says, darkness was over the land of Egypt three days, a darkness to be felt. But then it continues, and it says in Exodus chapter 10, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And so we see in this passage some beautiful truth. We see that as the sun is darkened at Jesus' crucifixion, we see a veil of darkness came upon the light of the world. It symbolized our depravity coming upon Him, our judgment, God's judgment for our sin coming upon Him, and Him working for our redemption in this moment. The veil of darkness came over Jesus so that the veil of darkness might be lifted from you and me. Darkness came upon the very light of the world. Fell upon Jesus in judgment so that those who trust in Jesus might be able to walk in the light. Verse 45, let's look at what it says. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. We see something very powerful and symbolic here in this curtain being torn we could just read it and go yeah it's pretty interesting there was a curtain in the temple it was torn in two but we have to understand in from the old testament perspective what's the curtain doing the curtain in the temple was a physical illustration of a spiritual truth the curtain kept sinful people from the presence of a holy god don't you remember the the curtain was to separate the holy place from the most holy place. See, in the temple there were courts on the outside that anybody could go into. Didn't matter where you came from or who you were or what background you were, there was a court for you. God showed in the tabernacle that He was the God of every person and that He was a God who desired to save all the nations. And so there was a court for you, but then there was a court that was not for you. There was a a holy place that only certain people at certain times of the year could go in. And then within that holy place, there was a most holy place. And there was a curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy place. And there was only one person that could go in to the most holy place. And that person, the high priest for the year, could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the presence of God was so thick in the most holy place that... That only that one person could go in, and before he could go in, he had to offer sacrifices for himself to make sure that his sin was atoned for. And he would go in there, and they would put bells on his garments, and they would tie a rope around him. So just in case the bells stopped jingling, and he died in the presence of a holy God, the other priest could pull old brother out. It was a holy place. And only certain people could go into God's presence. And so this curtain not only kept God's, well, not only kept sinful people out of God's perfect presence, but it also kept God's judgment and His holiness 
from coming upon sinful people. And so the curtain kept sinful humanity also needing a mediator, a priest to go in for them. On the Day of Atonement, that somebody had to go offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for their sins. They needed a priest to do that. But not only does the priest hold significance, excuse me, the curtain holds significance, but the design on the curtain holds significance. In Exodus chapter 26, verse 31, what we see is how God is showing Moses how the tabernacle in the wilderness should be designed. And it says very specifically in 2631, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Cherubim. When you think of cherubim, when I think of cherubim, the first place that I ever hear of a cherubim in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Let's look at what it says. This is after the fall, after God curses um, Satan, after He curses Eve, and after He curses Adam. He promises salvation. He offers a sacrifice for them. And then He drove out the man out of the garden. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, He placed the cherubim, And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So there in the garden, or at the edge of the garden, God, after the fall, says sinful humans cannot come into my garden where I dwell, where I walk. They can't come into my presence anymore. Your sins, Isaiah chapter 59, 2, your sins have separated you from me. And there, he places a cherubim to guard the way back in to the tree of life. They can't come back into the tree of life that way. They have no right to the tree of life now with that kind of sin in their life. And this curtain in the temple was a a daily reminder that they could not, that sinful man, sinful humanity, could not enter into the presence of a holy God. And what we see in this curtain being torn in two is something incredibly beautiful. That there, on that day, that great and terrifying day of the Lord, where God is executing judgment on His Son, and God is opening a fountain of salvation, there on that day, not only is Jesus' blood being shed, not only is Jesus dying for your sins and my sins, not only is He doing accomplishing our salvation, but He is also opening a way for you and me. A way that sinful people can come back into the presence of a holy God. A way that you and I can once again have a relationship with God. And it's not because we're good. It's not because of our merit. It's not because that we're sinless. But it's because that we had a sinless Savior who died on the cross. And with His death, the earth quaked and the sky went dark and the veil in the temple was torn in two and the other gospel writers will say from top to bottom signifying that this was not something that man could do but this is what God had done that God opened a way for you and I to enter into the holy place that's why it says in Hebrews chapter 4 since we have such a great high priest let us come before the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, where we may find mercy and grace for help 
in time of need. God, there on the cross, rends the veil, torn into the cherubim that guards the way back into the holy place, into the presence of a holy God. The cherubim are torn asunder. They're broken. They are no longer standing as a dividing line between us and God. God makes peace with sinful man on that day through Jesus on the cross. And now we can come. Now Jesus again says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come. If anyone's hungry, let him come. If anyone's weary and heavy laden, let him come. Come to me. And we can come. We can come boldly. Isn't that good news? That we have access to the creator, God of the universe. Have you ever prayed and said, God doesn't want to hear my prayers? I don't want to bother him. I mean, my prayers just seem so small. Have you ever thought that? They're so insignificant. I mean, other people are going through such huge things. And all I'm praying for is, and it just seems so small compared to what they're praying for, I don't need to come to him. I don't want to bother him. And can I just tell you, because of what Jesus did for you, God wants you to bother him. He invites you to bring your prayers, whether they seem insignificant or they seem overwhelming. He invites you to come into the most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. He invites you to come because the curtain is torn in two. He invites you to come. I mean, just think about what we've been doing all day. So far today, we have sang these wonderful hymns of our faith, and we have sang, sung, singed them. Oh, wow, my, my English ain't too good right now. We have been singing these beautiful songs to the Creator God of the universe, who I deserve to be separated from, yet because of Jesus, He invites us to sing to Him. Well, I don't sing well, preacher. He doesn't care. You have permission to come before the throne of grace with whatever song or whatever prayer you want to come with. Why? Because the veil's torn. Isn't that good news? Oh, Men, men are bad about this. Well, I don't sing. Why not? Because I don't sing well. Can I just ask you, men, get over that. That is pride. That is a, a, a type of pride that will lead you to not do the thing that literally Jesus died on the cross to invite you to do. That for Thousands of years, mankind could not come into the presence of God, but now we have access to do what? To worship Him as we ought to. Hush up and sing. It doesn't say sing well to the Lord. Make a joyful noise. Can you make a noise this morning to the Lord? I'm sure you can. Sing to the Lord. Isaiah says he put a new song in my heart. When he saved me, he put a new song in my heart. A hymn of praise to our God. It's good news. Verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, if you read the book of Matthew or the book of Mark, you'll also hear that he says, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means... 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he yields up his spirit to the Lord. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is significant for us. I want you to know Jesus is fulfilling the word of the Messianic Psalm in chapter, uh, chapter 31, verse 5. Psalm 31, 5. I think we have it on the screen. It says this. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. He is quoting Psalm 31, 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. He's also reminding us of the truth that nobody is killing Jesus. Nobody killed Jesus, but John chapter 10, verse 14 and 17 and 18 says, I'm the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father on this day on the cross Jesus is reminding us that nobody's killing him, that he's committing his life back to the Lord. He is allowing himself to die. He's laying his life down for his sheep. Having said this, he breathed his last. Verse 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. Isn't that a turn of events? Isn't that a change of heart? Can I just let you know that if you think you're too far gone for the grace of God, this verse right here proves that you're not. This was literally the one who was just tasked with killing him. Now praises God, says, surely this man was innocent. And the book of Mark said, surely this man is the son of God. The very centurion at the foot of the cross who literally just pounded the nails into his hands turns and has a change of heart by beholding the very Son of God on the cross, and he looks upon Jesus, now his Messiah, and says, this man was innocent, he praised God, and he said, surely this is God's Son. You think you're too far gone? Or do you think you're too close? That you don't need it? Let me tell you, you need a Savior, and this man right here shows us we need a Savior. And our Savior is able. As I quote this Spurgeon quote all the time. Spurgeon said, I have a great need for a Savior. And I've got a great Savior for my need. So how do we apply this? Number one is worship. Number one is worship. Guys, please hear me. We do not come to worship to, to, to spectate worship. The choir is not performing for us. They are leading you. The choir is not here so that you can go, wow, they did really good today. The choir is here to invite you to join them as a worship guide that you would follow their example to the throne of grace and worship God. Why? Because the veil has been torn on your behalf so that you can enter in with songs of praise. Worship Him. Sing. Oh, pastor, it makes me uncomfortable. Good. Because the Christian life is not about your comfort. Well, I don't know about a singing thing. What did you think you're going to do in heaven? Play golf? You're going to sing. For how long? 
ever. <laughs> Get used to it. This is a training ground. You think God's going to automatically make you sing perfectly? I don't think so. I think that's part of the beauty of the throne of God. Every nation and tribe and tongue and language and those who can sing and those who can't all around them and they don't care anymore. Boldness in prayer. I don't think we understand the importance of prayer. What, what if the salvation of the nations depended on our prayerfulness? I can't remember who said it, but, but one, uh, one uh, theologian said that maybe our uh, ineffectiveness in evangelism in days like today are because of our prayerlessness, our lack of prayerless, or our, our prayerlessness in the church, our lack of prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we see that prayer for the nations and prayer for kings and all who are in high officials is attached to the mission of God. And now, now we have access to the throne of grace. Boldness. Have boldness in prayer. Ask Him for big things. Why? Because we serve a big God. There's nothing He can't do. Tim Keller, uh, one of the preachers I enjoy listening to a lot, he says, has a saying about prayer. He says, there's only one person that can call on the king at 3 a.m. for a cup of cold water, and that's his child. And that's the same access that we have to God as children. Call on him. There's no cup of cold water too small for the King of glory not to answer your prayers because of what Jesus has done. That's what it means coming in Jesus' name. It's not this little magical phrase that you add on to your prayers at the end. But coming in Jesus' name means I come because of what Christ has accomplished for me. I come because of His sinless life, His sinner's death, the torn veil, that He is my high priest... I come because of Jesus. I have no other merit to come and bring my plea before the throne. That's what we say when we say in Jesus' name. We should have boldness in prayer. But this also points us forward to another fact. That Jesus became the last and final high priest. The high priest after the order of Melchizedek that would never die. That high priest that would be an eternal high priest. Who would offer the final sacrifice for sins. That Jesus would be our high priest. And then we are made into priests of God. And this points us to the, this theology that you and I are now priests of God Most High. You can find it in 1 Peter chapter 2. You can find it in Revelation chapter 1. You can find that God calls you and I a kingdom of priests. That means you're a minister. It's one of the one of the things that we believe, the priesthood of all believers, that every member at Seneca Baptist Church is a minister. We minister 
We are ambassadors on behalf of God, making pleas before dying men. We are ministering. We are ministering. You're a minister. You are a priest now because of Jesus. I want to end with this this passage in Joel chapter 3 and in Zechariah chapter 13. Joel chapter 3. So I'm going to read part of the passage that I already read back in Joel, but I'm going to read it in its context. It's talking about the coming day of the Lord. Can you think, just think for a moment as we're reading, think back on what we've heard of Jesus, what's happening to Jesus in this moment, and what we know to be true of what he accomplished. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley of Jehoshaphat was in between the Mount of Olives is in between the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane and the temple. He he goes on to say, Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. This is what I read. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. There are some of us here today in the valley of decision. What are we going to do with this Jesus? For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people. A stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy. And strangers shall never again pass through it. In that day, in the day of the Lord. The day of God's redemption. In that day, verse 18 says, The mountains shall drip sweet wine. And the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley. Zechariah 13. This is not on the screen. Zechariah 13 says, On that day, the day of the Lord, the day of the day where Christ is crucified, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. We're going to sing a song. There is a fountain. I want you to stand with me. And as we sing. Maybe the Lord has spoken to you. Maybe the Lord has said. You're in the middle of the valley of decision. What are you going to do with Jesus? Have you trusted him?
What have you done with Christ? Have you looked upon Christ in simple faith and accepted His gift? You're in the valley of decision. You're, you say you're a Christian, but you're living like you're without Christ, like a practical atheist. You're in the valley of decision. Today is a day where we look upon our sinner or our sinless Savior dying a sinner's death on the cross. He breathes His last, and we look upon Him as He opens the way for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Today, we have access to the great throne of God. What are you going to do with Jesus? And Maybe today you want to respond. And I'd encourage you to. Don't wait, and don't harden your heart. Let's pray and then let's sing. Miss Margaret, would you play as I pray? Father, there was the crowd surrounding Jesus on a hill called Golgotha just outside the city gates in the valley of Jehoshaphat. The onlookers now have a decision. What do we do with Jesus? Father, would we, would you work in our hearts in such a way as to draw any in this room that are separated from Christ, would you draw them to salvation? We can't do it. Father, there are others in this room that have walked away, hardened our heart, become callous. And would you Please, today, draw some back to rededicate their lives to Christ. Father, would you teach us what it is to worship you? Not just today, but in the days and seasons ahead. Would we become passionate worshipers of God who are captivated by you and surrendered to you? And would you help us to pray like it depends on us and trust like it depends on you. Father, we want to see our community be saved. We want to see you do a great work among us. And Father, we can't do it. But you can. Would you help us, O Lord? We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said? You respond as we sing.